From the campus of Harvard Medical School, this is Think Research, a podcast devoted to the stories behind clinical research. I'm Abby. And I'm Brendan, and we're your hosts. Think Research is brought to you by Harvard Catalyst, Harvard University's Clinical and Translational Science Center. And by NCATS, the National Center for Advancing Translational Sciences. Heart valve diseases affect roughly 3% of the U.S. population. For those with heart valve disease, open heart surgery to replace the valve is the most common treatment. Unfortunately, open heart surgery is costly, invasive, and extremely time sensitive. Through a unique partnership with Japanese pharmaceutical company Koa, Dr. Elena Aikawa and her teams are using multidisciplinary, cutting edge technologies to find drug targets that will reduce the need for valve replacement and the burden of heart valve diseases. Dr. Aikawa is the director of the Vascular Biology Program at the Center for Interdisciplinary Cardiovascular Sciences and the director of the Heart Valve Translational Research Program at Brigham and Women's Hospital and a professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School. Dr. Aikawa, thank you very much for joining us. Welcome to the show. Oh, thank you very much. Very happy to be here. So you're the director of the Vascular Biology Program at the Center for Interdisciplinary Cardiovascular Science, and you're also the founding director of the Heart Valve Translational Research Program at Brigham and Women's Hospital. Could you describe uh, the goals of each of these programs? Uh, We'll be happy to. Uh, Let me start with uh, CICS, uh, which is Center for Interdisciplinary Cardiovascular Sciences. So we um, launched our center in December 2009 at the Brigham and Women's Hospital in collaboration with the Japanese pharmaceutical company, Kowa. And this is a unique model of academia industry partnership, which is focusing on uh, target discovery for new therapies. Despite high unmet needs for new therapies, the entire process from target discovery to preclinical and clinical development of new compounds takes very, very long time, sometimes decades. To speed the process, we establish a new paradigm of fully integrated drug discovery research at CICS. And at CICS, academic investigators and pharmaceutical scientists from COVA work side by side. This is a unique. And the goal of the cardiovascular calcification program at CCS that I'm leading is to develop new classes of drugs to treat vascular and valvular calcification through the speedy translation from the target discovery phase to the drug development. On the other hand, uh, the heart valve translational research program was um, uh, launched in 2015 in recognition of the growing clinical burden caused by heart valve disease and the uniqueness of the heart valve tissue. Uh, Because of that, the division of cardiovascular medicine has developed a one-of-a-kind program solely uh, devoted to heart valve research. The mission of heart valve translation research program at the Brigham is to increase awareness of heart valve disease in order to stimulate research into disease mechanisms and therapeutic target discovery. The heart valve represents unique and highly dynamic tissues 
They are distinct from other cardiovascular tissues and require a multidisciplinary approach to fully integrate and comprehend the various components of valvular pathology and physiology. Therefore, a fully integrated holistic approach is required to connect all aspects of heart valve disease. The heart valve translational program facilitates collaborations between basic researchers and clinicians within cardiovascular medicine and Brigham and Women's Hospital and incorporates the strengths of engineering and network medicine throughout the Boston area to establish a holistic research program dedicated to finding therapeutic options for patients with heart valve disease. So the CICS is in collaboration with COA Pharmaceuticals, um, and that was started in what year, do you say? 2009. 2009. Okay, so then uh, six years or so later, you started the Heart Valve Translational Research Program. Um, what right. was What was the inspiration for starting the Heart Valve Research Program? Uh, that's, that's a very, very good question, actually. Um, uh, when I came to the Brigham in 1991, um, my mentor was Dr. Frederick Sean in pathology department. I'm pathologist by training, so I started, uh, I came here from Moscow, uh, Russia, and joined the um, uh, Dr. Sean's uh, lab. And Fred Sean is known um, a researcher in heart valve disease, and he kind of inspired me to look into heart valve disease since, you know, like those early times. And uh, I knew that uh, for heart valve disease, there are no treatments um, except heart valve surgeries. And uh, this is something what inspired me to develop this program to find therapeutic options. That I can talk about it probably later. Mm-hmm. Okay, great. And so the work you're doing, um, you're focusing on heart valve disease and um, also specifically calcific aortic valve disease. Can you tell us about this disease and how it's currently treated? The various heart valve diseases combined affect almost 3% of total populations in the U.S., and this is a more than 7 million Americans, with an incident of greater than 10% in elderly patients. Aortic valve stenosis uh, occurs due to development of calcific aortic valve disease, which characterizes by formation of large calcific nodules in valvular lysis. These nodules cause leaflet stiffness and immobility, which results in heart failure. And there is no drug therapy to prevent or treat calcific aortic valve disease. And only effective treatments are invasive and costly open heart surgery or transcatheter valve operation to replace the aortic valve. And if valve is not replaced within next two years after uh, uh, onset of uh, symptoms, the patients could develop a heart valve failure and die. And the outcomes of um, heart valve disease or calcific aortic valve stenosis are worse than in many invasive cancers. So it's devastating disease. And imagine if you have a patient who is 30, 40 years old and she has open heart surgery with a very big scar from throat to you know abdomen. And it, it's, uh, it, it, it's not very 
pleasant, right, um, uh, for a woman and for a man as well. So that that it's very difficult to live with this scar for uh, forever, and we still don't have means to create the um, um, biprosthetic valve which can last for whole entire. Uh, life of the patient after operation. And most likely that a patient after uh, surgery or uh, replacement of heart valve with, with biprosthetic valve will need to have second replacement within 10, 12 years. So if you're young and have valve replacement, most likely you will, have it, you will need to have another one. So now surgeons and the companies who, who uh, develop devices um, develop transcatheter valve um, um, replacements, uh, which um, also involves practically the same kind of valve, biprosthetic valve, which are used for open-heart surgery. Those valves would, we will most likely not um, uh, survive for a long time in a patient and would calcify uh, same way as the biprosthetic valve calcified within maybe even um, shorter period of time. So that would be that would require another operation or another transcatheter valve. Um, uh, okay. So you're saying that even the the replacement valves suffer from this calcification that a natural biologically or like the original valve would, would suffer from? Yes, exactly. That that is very big problem in the field and it's still um, is not we, we don't know how to deal with this problem yet. Many relief mm -hmm. labs and um, uh, companies are working on it, but still there is no solution. Mm -hmm. And besides that, you know, so even without the calcification problem, people still have to get their replacement valves replaced again. It's not a if you do have a valve replacement, it's not a lifetime fix. That's exactly what's happening. It's not a lifetime fix and the patients most likely need another surgery or if patient has first surgery and uh, so most likely the patient cannot have transcatheter valve replacement when she or he older, let's say first surgery was in when she or he was 60 and then the next one is when it's 80. So it, it should be, again, second open-heart surgery because usually surgeons don't do, in, like at least that's what I learned from literature, that surgeons usually don't do first open-heart surgery and then transcatheter. So it's, 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 it's very hard. And imagine if, if you uh, pediatric patient, same thing, you know, may, maybe a pediatric patient would have several open-heart surgeries. <laughs> Because valves, um, which um, uh, which are made by companies by prosthetic valves, are not growing with pediatric patients together, right? So the valve, if if patients, uh, let's say, um, 10 years old, valve will not grow when patient is 20 years old. So it needs to be replaced, even even if it's still functioning well. Because of that, um, we are working very hard at CICS and the, uh, within the uh, Heart Valve Translational Research Program to find some kind of drug which can prevent or slow progression of calcification. So that's my goal, and I hope to retire 
um, <laughs> before I retire, before my retirement, I will find some solution for that and, you know, make some, some patients happier. Right. So, um, like you said, you're, you're working on a drug that can treat patients with this calcific, um, calcific aortic valve disease. Um, and you talked about how the heart valve is a very kind of specific tissue. Can you talk a little bit about how, um, like what happens when the valve calcifies and maybe what makes the heart valve so um, particular yeah. or, or hard to treat? There are so many aspects which make um, valve treatment is very difficult and uh, make valve tissues very special. For example, heart valves contain specialized set of cells, which are very heterogeneous, so very different uh, from one, one another. They have been shown to exhibit both genotypic and phenotypic differences from other cells within cardiovascular system. And these cells, interestingly, sense and respond to changes in the mechanical properties of the highly dynamic valvular tissues to maintain hemostasis. You understand that valve is moving thousands of times within, you know, minutes. It's constantly moving. Uh, no other tissue does the same thing, right? And under this pathologic pressure or even not pathologic pressure, cells undergo osteogenic changes or osteogenic transformation. Uh, this is a one theory. And the other theory that cells are released extracellular vesicles that could serve as a nidus for nucleation of hydroxyapatite or calcium. And um, it, 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 it's interesting. It has been reported by our pathology colleagues at the Brigham and Women's Hospital that osteogenic process, and osteogenic pro by osteogenic process, I mean the bone, real bone formation. And sometimes you can see the bone within the tissue, within the valve tissue, and you can see even bone marrow within that bone. So it's like real bone. But it, this process is very, very rare, okay? So the other processes are um, more degenerative formation or uh, nucleation of the calcium. And uh, we think that this second process is more common. For example, as I mentioned, our um, uh, colleagues at pathology department showed that uh, bone formation is very rare in both bicuspid and tricuspid valves. Approximately 10% of patients would have, you know, bone, bone formation, but the other um, have more degenerative abundant amount of calcium. And uh, interestingly, the bone formation never happens in bioprosthetic valves. Right? So suggesting that 90% of calcification would occur through the extracellular vesicle associated mechanism. And in my lab, we studied the formation of calcification through this extracellular vesicle associated mechanism. Every cell in your body releases extracellular vesicles. So you're sitting here, you're walking around, your cells are constantly release extracellular vesicles to keep homeostasis. And vesicles are also very good communicators between cells and extracellular matrix, so they're talking to each other and uh, with the cells and surroundings. When some, some pathological conditions occur, like atherosclerosis, diabetes, or chronic kidney disease, when you have high levels of phosphate or calcium, 
So vesicles also start to have pathological cargo inside them, okay? And they tend to calcify. And they tend to nucleate calcium and uh, phosphate and hydroxyapatite molecule and become uh, calcification. So we, we found that mitochondria is involved in this process during mitochondria calcium signaling um, alkaline phosphatase activation is kind of increases, and alkaline phosphatase is a very important molecule, which um, kind of early marker of calcification. And this alkaline phosphatase would load to extracellular vesicle via molecule so-called sartillin, and we published this paper in JCI in 2016. And, uh, this loading of uh, um, alkaline phosphatase within the vesicles would increase extracellular vesicles calcification potential. And then another molecule comes, another molecule which we discovered in the lab, so-called annexin-1. And annexin-1 promotes aggregation of those vesicles. So imagine you have several vesicles which are loaded with very highly, you know, postogenic potential uh, like alkaline phosphatase. And then they start to aggregate with each other and start to grow when they're trapped in extracellular matrix within the collagen or something like that. So we, this paper was just accepted to science advances um, a couple of weeks ago. And we published another paper in Nature Materials um, several years ago when we demonstrated that aggregated uh, extracellular vesicles would kind of nucleate hydroxyapatite and form this microcalcification. So you're yeah. saying, just to re recap what you were just talking about, so the extracellular vesicles, when, you know, their cells or their particles that are moving around our bodies all the time, um, and when somebody has a disease like kidney disease, diabetes, those extracellular vesicles have extra stuff in them that promotes this bone growth or calcification and calcification potential yes yes and so when they get together that's when or are they are they attracted to each other somehow because of their common contents so um good question um so we think what happens that they have they express annexin one on the surface of extracellular vesicles. Because what is extracellular vesicle? It's actually mini-me of the cell, right? Because extracellular vesicles bust from the cell, which is already pathological, and the membrane is pathological as well. So the extracellular vesicles will bust from the cell, and this membrane of um, our that vesicles contain annexin-1. And annexin-1 is a tethering protein which uh, promotes aggregation. So it, once you have expressed uh, uh, annexin-1, the other vesicles would tend to aggregate with, you know, surrounding vesicles. That's how we think they aggregate with each other. And with process of aggregation is very important for formation of microcalcifications because otherwise vesicles are very, very tiny. They're just uh, 100 to 300 nanometers, very, very small. So the um, microcalcifications I'm talking about are approximately um, 15 microns. So they're much larger than extracellular vesicles. And in order for them to be uh, microcalcification to be harmful, they need to uh, be certain size, as I just mentioned, 15 microns, certain shape, 
you know, they need to be elongated. And once they elongated, they develop very high stress concentrations on their pole. And if they're sitting in the fibrous cap of atherosclerotic plaque, which could be very, very thin, it causes very high stress concentrations, high mechanical stress, and could lead to the rupture. So that microcalcifications are bad for atherosclerotic lesions, but probably they don't affect so much um, valve um, dynamic, right? So, but another bad thing about microcalcification that they can grow, because if vesicles can aggregate, microcalcification can also coalesce with each other and grow and eventually become larger macrocalcifications. And this is what is harmful for the valve. So you've been working with COA for about 11 years, and you also work closely with scientists from COA who come to the lab and work um, alongside your postdocs and researchers. So um, I was wondering if you could talk about that relationship and that model and how common is that um, and maybe what the advantages of that are and how it helps you in your work? Yeah, this, this is also a very interesting and important question because in our knowledge, in my knowledge specifically, there is no other incident of um, this kind of model in in U.S. at least um, yeah, where academic investigators and investigators from pharmaceutical company working together in the shared space. So this is, a, I think it's very unique. And the reason why we actually came to this idea, why we're doing that, because um, uh, to kind of like make um, this gap between academia and industry smaller or even, even don't have this gap, right? So because the um, scientists from COBA learning from academic people how to um, look broadly and how to create the mechanistic uh, data and we are learning from them how to um, do some sophisticated experiments which are associated with target discovery. In general, we maintain a very active and pleasant environment. Without this environment, without understanding each other within, you know, this small space, it's impossible to uh, create something innovative. We have no boundaries between groups, and we, most of all, um, welcome out-of-the-box ideas. You know, anyone who come up with crazy idea, we're really, really, you know, excited, and we start discussing it and see how uh, fruitful it would be. For example, we lack, in, in my field, in calcification field, we lack uh, animal models. So there are no very good animal models for uh, development of aortic valve calcification. So we need we needed to overcome it. And another problem uh, in calcification field that calcifications or microcalcifications cannot be seen by imaging modalities because they're so small, as I mentioned, they're like, uh, uh, microcalcification uh, approximately, I mean, um, uh, extracellular vesicles approximately 100 to 300 nanometers microcalcification, uh, 15, mic 15 microns. But this, all, all of this is still below 
um, resolution of current imaging modalities, right? So that is a very big problem. So we needed to create something so we can uh, follow up formation of microcalcification. And one of my postdocs, his name is Josh Hutchison. He is now an independent investigator, uh, assistant professor in Florida uh, International University. But when he worked with me, he, he, he said, you know, why don't we try to, to, to do some, to use some hydrogels? And don't use the cells. So he took the um, hydrogel, hydrogel, so collagen fibers, um, and then seeded those uh, collagen fibers with vesicles, which he isolated from calcifying uh, smooth muscle cells. And then vesicles started to aggregate with each other and form microcalcification. So because of the, uh, we could look at this close up and because of availability of high resolution um, uh, technology, my, microscope in Harvard um, Imaging Center, we were able to kind of follow up formation of microcalcifications and this, for the first time see how microcalcification form at the level of individual extracellular vesicles. So no, no one done them before, but you know, we, we did it and now it's very uh, widely used technology. Another technology which, we, which I really um, like to use and now um, I think it's used not only in our group but also around the world um, is so-called molecular imaging. So um, molecular imaging implies um, molecular imaging agent which has fluorescence and once it binds to, for example, to hydroxyapatite in your body, it could be bone or it could be calcification, it could be microcalcification. It, it binds to it and, flor and uh, prov um, uh, provides fluorescent signal. And then you can just uh, look at this signal in vivo while mouse is still alive. You know, you can also have a section from the certain tissue and if you have any signs of calcification, you would see fluorescence in this calcified uh, particles. And you can also use the same agent for in vivo cells, and we, we could also uh, uh, use it even for extracellular vesicles. So this kind of ideas which can help you to look deeper in, in, um, in some calcification aspects are always very welcome. I always look uh, for postdocs in my group who who would have very diverse background. For example, uh, several people, including George Hutchison, and I have two more, uh, Samantha Atkins and um, uh, Mark Blazer, who has biomechanical background. And it's different from, for example, uh, background of Max Rogers, who is also in my group now, who has a background on inflammation, lipids, and so on. So, you know, combining this background sometimes gives you very unique ideas and uh, provides some more creativity. We were thinking about it from the beginning and uh, Masanori Aikawa, who is director, founding director of the center, he has this kind of idea from the beginning that we need to work together. We need to work within the same uh, space. We need to learn from each other. There are many enterprises when academia works with company, right? The company would um, send the call 
and say, okay, we're interested in, in the, um, some new targets for, let's say, calcification or inflammation. And the academic investigators would send their proposals to the company. Company will choose which proposal is the best and fund the, this investigation from certain um, groups, right? But this is a difference. We work so close, we, like, we, we are the same group, right? We're the same family. We have uh, people who represent COA uh, at the center who are uh, administrators, and we have our own administrators. So they, they, uh, they kind of communicate with each other very closely. We have video con conferences uh, bi-weekly or monthly with COVA scientists uh, when, we, when we, we need to describe them what we found and in parallel they're doing high throughput screening in Tokyo and they tell us what they found. So it's, it's very dynamic exchange between COVA and um, us. The idea was from the beginning, and uh, I, I should give uh, all kudos to Masanori who came up with this, and I think he, through his passion, persistent and deep understanding of Japanese culture, uh, he is successfully leading this enterprise. You know, it's, it, it's a very important understanding of Japanese culture. You know, if you have someone who um, is not really understanding deep deeply in the Japanese culture, it would be very, very hard, I believe, to, to, um, to have this center and make it successful. I think within 10 years, we really became one of the successful labs at Harvard. You mentioned the, sort of the importance of understanding Japanese culture. And I was wondering if there is anything that you could share about that, like any specific things about Japanese culture that you find it very important to, or that's necessary for your organization to understand? Yeah, I think two different things. The first of all, it's uh, industry, right? It's pharmaceutical industry, which is totally different from academia. Um, academic people like freedom. They like to do what they like to do. Uh, and usually uh, pharmaceutical companies are telling you what they have should be done and how it should be done. And we, we see these differences between academic postdocs and um, uh, Japanese investigators. How Masanori was able to communicate with uh, Japanese side, with um, in the industrial side, um, needed, I believe, very specific understanding, as I mentioned, of Japanese culture, of Japanese people, and understanding Japanese language, and speaking that language fluently with understanding all nuances. For example, for me, sometimes uh, it was very hard to understand what the other party wanted, uh, because Japanese people are usually very polite, but sometimes you don't know if um, you're talking about same thing and they really understand what you're saying because they would never tell you no, okay? So it was very hard. Um, and now, for example, I learned a lot and I have lots of Japanese uh, scientists who I'm working with. Uh, they're kind of my postdoctoral fellows. Um, and first thing, when I interview them, I would tell them, uh, 
please, if you don't understand what I'm saying, please tell me, Elena, I didn't get it. Uh, please repeat again. Please say it again. Don't hesitate. This is a very, very important. And until I'm sure that, you know, they understand what I'm saying, and I will use paper and pen and draw things. It's kind of like memory note, you know, like brain, brain, <laughs> brain map, if you call it. And, you know, I would draw everything and they will leave with this note. And then, you know, every time we can come back to it and say, okay, we were discussing this. Did you get it? What did you do? You know, just to make sure. So it, it, it's been hard. But, you know, positive thing about this, that, you know, when Japanese uh, fellows are coming uh, in the first year, this is a process, how it goes, like it, it's hard, right? We need to make sure to understand each other. But within a year, within a two years, uh, three years, they become amazing. They become, you know, they become fluent in English. They can write papers. And I have several who wrote uh, papers as the first author. We're just uh, re revising one for um, ATVB, uh, which was written by two Japanese fellows. And, uh, you know, they can present well and they can communicate nicely. They become global scientists. So they, when, they, when they go back to Tokyo, when they go back to Japan, when we have um, video conferences, they sitting now, my fellows are sitting on the other side, and Masanori's fellows are sitting on the other side because they become, became leaders of the group in Tokyo. And we're talking about how to make progress, you know, like about our progress, about, um, uh, you know, our research. But now they are not fellows anymore. They speak perfect English. They, they, they're leaders in, in the COBA, and they, um, they have global vision. And I think this is a very, very important training process which uh, those scientists undergo at our center. And I think this is our contribution. I, I believe we trained probably 40, 50 scientists already. And I, I think that's enormous contribution from uh, Masanori and my effort as well. What do you see going forward the next 10 years? What are, what are your hopes and sort of goals for... Um, either CICS or um, the Heart Valve Translational Research Program. What are your goals looking forward the next five, ten years? I'm glad to say that we just signed um, our agreement and for another ten years. And I believe this is an enormous accomplishment and it's um, very important for COVA and for us as well. My major goal is to develop uh, first-in-class drug to treat cardiovascular calcification, particularly valvular calcification. And this is something which is, uh, I don't know if, it, if it's possible at all, but I would, I would work for the next 10 years just focusing on that at CICS. Um, and if we do, if we create even one single drug before my retirement, I would think that uh, I accomplished my dream and I did something very important for patients and for myself as well. Great. Well, Dr. Aikawa, thank you very much for talking with us. It was a pleasure to have this conversation with you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this podcast, 
Please rate us on iTunes and help us spread the word about the amazing research taking place across the Harvard community. To learn more about the guests on this episode, visit our website, catalyst.harvard.edu slash thinkresearch. Thank you.